Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, and the Lord woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, for many of us, as soon as we said thanks be to God, what was really going through our minds was, what were you thinking? Paul, right? Um, Long hair, short hair, head coverings. The head of who is the head of what? Women are the glory of whom? Um, Are we really going to talk about this as a church? Yeah, we are. And here's... (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, and here's the reason why. The same reason we preach from any text as we gather together as the people of God, regardless of whether it jives with our cultural sensibilities or not. Because it's here. And I believe that God has spoken through various authors throughout Scripture... So as Christians, we don't get to pick and choose which texts we can conveniently jump and skip over, over against the ones we are thoughtfully to engage. And so today, we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we see this little urban church in first century Corinth who could be best described as a beautiful mess. And really, that resonates with our experience as a church. Beautiful because we're found in Jesus, and yet we're a mess as the brokenness of sin continues to taint our lives or continues to inhabit destructive habits. And as we sit here this morning and we hear God's word proclaimed and read, we need these words in the 21st century just as much as they needed them in the first century. Now, this text, of course, raises a bunch of questions. (laughs) One commentator says this, And I think this will set the tone. This passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. Giddy up, right? Here we go. So yeah, it's natural we're going to have some questions here at this text. And here's the reality. We don't have weeks to dive into the complexity and the beauty of this passage. So with our time constraints, we may address a few of your questions. And I hope we can thoughtfully begin the conversation of 1 Corinthians 11. But underneath it all, 
is a foundational question that we need to address before we even jump into the text. And here's the question. Is there a difference between males and females? There is some affirmation from the back. Is there any (laughs) difference between males and females? And this isn't a trick question. I'm not going to say gotcha uh, on the other end of this. Here's the reality. If you've taken high school health class, there's an obvious yes to this answer, right? Men and women, all the way down to our chromosomes, are different in various regards. A lot of similarities, truth, but we're different. We look and we act and we sometimes even speak differently. Um, And some of that comes with cultural baggage and we need to navigate that thoughtfully. But men and women are different in many regards. And if that's true, then we need to ask a second question. Do our differences as men and women reflect different purposes for why we're here? Or to ask it a different way, do our differences work their way out in how men and women are called to different things? Now that question is not an easy question to answer. And I want to say before we even dive into this passage, because of the complexity, because of the realities in which many commentators have noticed, I want you to know that if you disagree with where I land on this passage, at the end of the day, there's freedom in that, okay? And I hope and pray that even if you disagree with where 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, as I've come to see, there are many other Bible-believing Christians who have come down on this passage differently. And they believe that Paul is speaking authoritatively through Scripture, but differently. And so I hope that even if you disagree with me this morning, that you can still call this place home. And we can still call each other brother and sister because what is the people of God but a people who in humility and dialogue seek to understand our great God as he's revealed himself through the gospel and his word, right? And this is not a cut and dry, easily easily navigatable text. So with all of that said, speaking to the church, I now want to speak to those of you who are here this morning who may not know Christ, okay? Or as you're wrestling through your faith, Um, and you're thinking, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. I can't believe that's a part of Christian scriptures. Well, let me say of first importance, okay, this particular topic isn't at the center of the Christian faith. It's important, as all of scripture guides us in faith and practice, but the primary question isn't, should women wear head coverings? (laughs) The primary question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he rose from the dead, then he knows something about humanity. He knows what it means to be fully human, better than you and I. And he's earned the right to be heard as he has sent out his apostles with authority to preach and to proclaim and to write what we have come to have as our written scriptures. Because look, even though this passage chafes against our modern Western sensibilities, if we look across our culture, saturated with pornography, rife with divorce, engaged in constant gender battles, even though we can't necessarily come to agreement oftentimes what the solution is, most folks who are honest will look at the culture and admit that it's broken. It's broken. The solutions may not come to agreement, but there's something that's broken. That's why there are different political parties lobbying for change because we know it's broken, regardless of what perspective you're coming from. Does our culture... Think about this. Does our culture, even in its progression, really inhabit a healthy respect between the sexes? Do you feel that in your workspace? Do you feel that in our wider cultural narratives that are portrayed? 
Can we even agree on what a healthy relationship looks like between the sexes? And yet we find ourselves, more often than not, fumbling our way through a gendered experience where Paul wants to give us a surer footing in the reality of being gloriously men and women. So as we seek to understand what God is speaking through the Apostle Paul this morning, we're going to see first why we are disgusted (laughs) with these words, two, um, why we need these words today, and then thirdly, how we can live these words, okay? So why we're disgusted or disturbed by these words, why we need these words today, and how we can live these words. Let's first look at why we're disturbed or disgusted with these words, Um, Most people smiled as they sat down and even said, thanks be to God. We feel the tension of this, right? Well, Abraham Heschel, one of the leading Jewish theologians and philosophers of the 20th century, has wisely once said, the principle to be kept in mind is to know what you see rather than to see what you know. To know what you see rather than to see what you know. And when we come to this text, more often than not, our visceral reaction comes not from knowing what we see, but seeing what we know. And we far too often know abuse, don't we? We read these words and we instantly start thinking shackles, oppression. Because we, it's not hard to conjure up stories of men who abuse power and in so doing abuse women. And you don't have to go across the pond to a nation that's ruled by a movement called ISIS as of recently. If you look at the realities of the abuse of women in the United States... The reports are staggering. One in four women suffer domestic abuse here in the United States. Take it one step further. One in five women know the atrocities and the injustice and the violence of rape, personally. And if you're experiencing that in any form of a relationship, the church is called to be a safe space. Please come and talk with me. I want to walk alongside of you. This is supposed to be a place where we confront injustice and abuse and domestic violence. And with all of this, the stories we hear on the news, maybe the experience we've had in family growing up or in relationships we're in now, when we read women must cover their head when they pray, it's like nails on a chalkboard, isn't it? Like instantly your skin starts crawling and you think, ew, right? Isn't this a step back in the equality and the protection of women? Isn't this a step back in the dignity for women? And let me say, if those are your reasons for pushing back, those are really good reasons. And I understand how you could get there. But what if, what if really what's at the heart of our disturbance is that we don't understand these words? What if it's really at the heart of this disturbance is that we don't understand these words? What if we come to the text and see what we know outside the passage and bring it as the interpretive lens upon the passage instead of coming to know what we see and then allowing that to be our interpretive framework? What if this isn't guiding us to abuse but to shared glory? You know, Paul earlier in his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us in verse 6 and 7, one of the key motives in writing this letter is, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. For our glory. 
What if God is guiding his people, even here in a difficult text, for our good and our glory? It's a bold claim. And look, I know these words sound like they're from another world. In one sense, they are. Spoiler alert, we're not going to be handing out head coverings at the end of our gathering. Um, I know some of you are really looking forward to that. There's, this is a different culture, and there's a huge cultural gap between togas and skinny jeans, right? How do we get there and how we're representing ourselves in culture? And yet we need to do the difficult work, even on the text, to be clear that we think we understand. When we come to the ones that are, feel very foreign, we more naturally, I think, jump into good exegesis, but then we go to familiar texts and we jump into old sermons maybe we heard instead of doing the digging ourselves. But whenever we come to a text, we should do the more difficult word work to, to understand the context. It's historical as best we can, and it's textual as it's laid out within our letter. You understand a word within its sentence, within its paragraph, within its chapter, within its book. We do this in most conversations, but then when we come to the Bible, we just pluck these babies out um, and do what we want with them sometimes, yeah? So I want us to do that hard work together because I'm convinced there are good reasons why we need these words today. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. If you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or your Bible apps? And uh, we're going to begin in verse 3 in a minute. Now, one of the biggest reasons I think we need this passage is because I believe we need healing between the genders. Whether we know stories of abuse or we've experienced either the subtle or pretty striking ways in which we experience the differences between the sexes, either in friendships or in marriage... Just like this little church in first century Corinth, we need help, don't we? And if we're going to have any sort of proactive healing, it needs to first start with right thinking about gender. As we've already said, this passage is complex, but behind it all, Paul is applying an insight that's anchored in God's design. And here it is. Men and women are equal. This is crucial. Men and women are equal, but not equivalent. Men and women are equal, but not equivalent. What does that mean? Oh, that's, that's testy, isn't it? Men and women are equal before God in value and worth and dignity, and yet they're not equivalent. They're not interchangeable in every aspect of life. We see this in biology all the way down to our chromosomes, and yet when we get into the real world, we start thinking maybe that's different. They are gloriously different in our genders. Now, Paul begins to tease this out in verse 3, and... We're learning all kinds of things on how to read our Bibles better, I hope. And one of those is to remember that our Bibles were not originally written in English, right? Our second half of the Bible, often called the New Testament, was written in Koine Greek, the lingua franca, the common language of the Roman Empire in the first century. And so when we come to the text, sometimes translators disagree on how to interpret key words that can really inform how we are to read a text. And this is one of those situations. Here in verse 3, if you're using an English Standard Version Bible, I I read it as it's printed here. In verse 3, it says, the head of a wife is her husband. But then you notice there's a little number 2 there that leads you to a footnote. And it says, this Greek word, gune, could mean more broadly women or more specifically wife. More broadly women or more specifically wife. And how you take gune will impact how you take the following statement about the husband or man, okay? And like I said, translators disagree, but the more I've read and studied, hang with me, some of the thickest stuff is almost done. 
Um, I've, I've come to see that Paul's talking more about men and women generally than he is about husbands and wives specifically. For one, here's my two compelling reasons for me as I wrestle through the passage. One, nowhere in this specific and more obvious context is Paul talking about marriage. All of them are the, the more generic terms for man and woman. So that's first. Secondly, when you get to verses 7 through 12, Paul is explicitly speaking to men and women generally. So with those two components, I come to read these particular words of woman and man more generally rather than specifically as husband and wife. With that said, let's look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And right from the get-go, the first observation we don't naturally go to, but it's the first component of our passage, is that this passage isn't all about women. (laughs) Right? Naturally, we start thinking women and head coverings and length of hair. But Paul starts with men, and he challenges where men get their authority. He says, men, your head, every man, every man, that word every, every man gets their authority, their head is Christ. Now, this word head here, um, it's just another, it's a metaphor for presenting authority. In the same way that the head gives direction to the rest of the body, or the headwaters of a river give direction to the rest of its flow, so Christ is to direct the very lives of men, is what this passage is saying. And while there's a lot we can wrestle through in this passage, this is a pretty clear spot, okay? Every man, the head of every man is Christ. And imagine, men, do you hear this call to you? As as you think about your workspace, you think about your home space, your friendships, Is Christ the primary influence and director of those relationships? Do you exert self-sacrifice, humility, gentleness, and compassion with those who come within your midst, exemplified par excellence to the extreme at the cross where Jesus dies for the church? Is that what models and therefore comes to define your life as men? That's step one. And if men, if we would get that, if that really became a defining characteristic of who we are, and we've all got room to grow there, if that was true of us, it would make everything else Paul's about to say so much more easy to follow. (laughs) But because we have this lens of abuse, the rest of this is terrifying. But we have to understand who Paul's calling out first. Men, hear your calling. The head of every man is Christ. God's wired men for submission to him. Now, then Paul shouts out to women, gives a shout out and says, hey, the head of women is man, and don't just fall back in seeing what you know. Let's know what we see here. The first thing to notice in our passage is that the the word head, its meaning hasn't changed, and it still means authority, but now in some way, men have authority in relation to women. And to give clarity, Paul's really helpful, um, He illustrates his point by saying the head of Christ is God. (laughs) Just as an aside, you know it's complicated when Paul uses the mystery of the Trinity to explain gender dynamics, right? (laughs) Thanks, Paul. That's helpful. Um, And if you've been a Christian for a while, I'm sure you've wondered about the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three and yet one. It's a paradox wrapped in an enigma, you know, covered 
and something else. Uh, it's, 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 it's out there. And yet, illustrating in this mystery of the Trinity, we see the beauty of who God is and even something wonderful about how men and women engage one another. The head of Christ is God. Jesus being equal to the Father, but not equivalent. Both are God, but still different persons. While in his earthly ministry, Jesus voluntarily gives up his rights as God in order to become a human servant for the salvation of the world. And I love how Paul details this out in greater clarity in a different one of his letters. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Although not being inferior, he allows the Father to take the lead in the movement of salvation history and look at the outcome in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Talk about glorious to the glory of God the Father. Difference and yet shared glory. Both carry out the mission to redeem the world in their respective roles, somehow three but one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're glorified by the other, pointing to the other. And it's here that we begin to catch some insight to the interplay of men and women. I want you to think about a dance. If you've, not a high school dance or a middle school dance, that's not going to be helpful. Um, And maybe not even dancing with the stars. But if you see some talented dancers which I guess there are quite a few on Dancing with the Stars. Okay, just as an aside, and I know this is not appropriate, but one thing that always astounded me is when an ice skater joined the dance team, because that's like dancing on ice, and I was like, that's not really a big leap for you. Anyway, whatever. I watched it. If you watch these talented dancers, um, they seem to float from one section of the floor to the other, don't they? Your focus isn't even as you're watching, your focus isn't on the leader as you watch this gentle leadership and this trust-filled following in every step, it becomes this beautiful picture of harmony, and yet you have to have a leader on the dance floor, or you'll never have the flow and the harmony needed. This is the divine dance we see even within the Godhead with Jesus and the Father, that now as men and women, we are created to reflect. But when we think of our own lives, this dance looks a lot more like a wrestling match, doesn't it? (laughs) Bumping and grinding gone terribly, terribly wrong. And this tension we feel between those of another gender has waged war in humanity. And it goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning, or at least near to the beginning. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they turn their back on God. And once their relationship with God is disordered, what does God say? He says the relationship between Adam and Eve And between every relationship, actually, thereafter will be a warring for authority. And that's where we start to see, coming back to Paul while he's talking about authority, and somehow men are the head of women. And you know what's fascinating? Is that Paul doesn't answer why men are the head of women. He doesn't say, this is why God designed it specifically. I want to know, like, 
why not the other way around? <laughs> why is it this way? Instead, when Paul talks about relationships between men and women, he chooses to lay out some general principles. And so I'm going to take a note from Paul here, and I want to lay out three general principles from 1 Corinthians 11 as it pertains to men and women, okay? So the first is, there's glory in your gender difference. There's glory in your gender difference. Now, even as I say that, we, some people are asking, and I'm asking with you, what does this have to do with head coverings? I still don't see how this connects What's going on with the length of hair? I've got short hair today. What, what is Paul talking about? I, as a guy, I used to always wear my hair long and never saw an issue of conscience here in this passage. So let's look at head coverings and use that as our example for all of these various aspects, okay? Um, well, first, historians disagree as to what exactly head, cor- head coverings were used for and even what the fashion sense was of the day. So that's helpful. Then, but here's our best guess, okay? Head coverings communicated something specific to culture about gender distinction. About gender distinction. And we can see that actually laying out in Paul here as he's walking through verses 2 through 16. It was common for head coverings to be used by married women as an outward sign that she was married. So if she didn't wear the head covering, she was culturally denying her marriage or potentially denying her gender as a woman. And if a man were to wear a head covering, this is a way for him to deny his male gender identity within that cultural scenario, causing a similar reaction like cross-dressing would today. It was that particular cultural perspective. So when we come to verse 7, Paul tells us that all of this has to do with glory. He starts talking about a uniqueness of glory that men have and a uniqueness of glory that women have. There's a unique glory in maleness and femaleness, and you shouldn't deny it, is what Paul's saying. Okay, if you hold with me on there, we'll detail that out in just a minute. But if head coverings were critical then for gender distinction, are we denying that today by not wearing them? Some churches think so. Some wider worldviews and cultures think so. But I think they missed the mark here, okay? And here's why. For much of the world, head coverings today communicate something different from what Paul was seeking to communicate in that first century context. Claire Smith, talking about this passage, I think brilliantly highlights when she writes, in actual fact, veils today more often mean the exact opposite from what Paul intends. Friends familiar with Muslim culture, which is primarily where veils are worn these days, tell me their head coverings are a sign of subservience and equality rather than a visual reminder of authority that occurs within a relationship of equal worth and dignity. Paul would not have been excited about communicating inequality, but he wanted to communicate, as he did in the first century, as he sought to in this little urban church, gender distinction among equals. But why is gender distinction even such a big deal, Paul? Like, what's going on? Because, number two, there's glory in telling God's story in your gender. There's glory in telling God's story in your gender. You know, every aspect of our lives tells a story that reveals where we get our meaning, where we get our purpose, where we find our identity. And in our gender, we're called to not only tell the story of redemption, but the story of creation. Before it all went and fell because of sin and brokenness. Look at verses 7 through 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Here's what he means. 
signified by the word for. Okay, this is helpful. And, and now, he, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. If you go back to Genesis 1, the first time we hear about gender distinction, it's Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where it says that God created humanity in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. Equality, both in the image of God. But then you get to Genesis 2. And that's where Paul is starting to detail out. He's already assuming equality, but he's about to show that this is, doesn't mean equivalence. What Paul is recounting is where God first and order is important in the ancient Near Eastern culture, primogeniture. If you were born first, you had authority, unlike the rest of your siblings within the family, okay? So order of importance is important. <laughs> that's a bit redundant, yeah? Um, so when, when God first forms Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he tells him to cultivate and keep the garden. Then God says something. It's not good for man to be alone. In other words, this world needs women if it has a shot to make it, right? This world needs women. Men need help from women. And so God puts the first man to sleep and he takes a part out of Adam. It's this really interesting narrative. And he creates Eve so that now created in equality in the image of God already with Genesis 1 in the background. Eve is not equivalent to Adam, but different enough to help Adam in the ways that he himself could not live out. Their differences become complementary as they seek to cultivate and care for God's good world. And you find this dance of good work in which they engage and are designed for. And for God's good purposes, he's ordained that the man, as the first created, take the lead. Later, when you get to 1 Corinthians 14... Paul says something that's almost more confusing about how this pans out, and so naturally we're going to go there. Um, so chapter 14, verse 33 and verse 34. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. What? <laughs> you know, how... Did we just break that rule when Sarah was beautifully reading a passage from Isaiah and leading us in song? Are we disobeying scripture, you know? And if you remember in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says, hey, if a woman prophesies and prays with her head uncovered, then it's a dishonor to her head, which means if her head's covered, it is appropriate for her to prophesy and pray. Well, in chapter 11, verse 5, it appears that he's encouraging women to speak up and have a voice but then you get to chapter 14 and he says women shouldn't speak at all. Is Paul just being schizophrenic here? Is he contradicting himself? Well, I, I don't think so. Um, the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is that someone, whether a man or a woman, has just given prophecy. And we're going to talk about what prophecy is in a couple weeks um, as we navigate the text ahead of us. And the elders, the teaching authority in the church are weighing what has just been prophesied as to whether that fits within God's story as true. In the early church, heresy was rampant. They didn't have the organized canon as of yet. And so when someone spoke with the authority that God was speaking in their midst, there needed to be an authority that weighed now these prophecies within their community. This role of oversight within the church is called elder, and we see this further elaborated on in 1 Timothy, 
and it's for men only. It's not that there aren't other aspects of leadership, teaching, preaching for women and men to flourish together within the church. But this one role of teaching authority in the church is to reflect the creation story by reflecting male headship within the family of God, as we see within the nuclear family. Even here, there's glory in telling God's story and gender. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably asking why again. (laughs) Like, why were genders designed this way? And my answer is, I don't know. And that sounds really convenient because I'm a guy. I get that, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, I, it's not an easy task, and honestly, I've heard stories and engaged with women in ministry who are friends of mine. We have women in ministry within Christ's community, and we navigate these murky waters in this one area that reflects male headship within the church to portray God's creation story. It's not easy, but it can be beautiful in a broken world. I think it has something to do, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, with God longing to reveal who he is and gender differences. But why not women as the head and men as those who now see women as their head? I don't know. You know, Kathy Keller in her pamphlet, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, has been really helpful for me. Um, A really thoughtful uh, writer. um, She's the wife of Pastor Tim Keller. And in it, she navigates some of her own experiences, her own wrestlings, and also wrestling with the text of Scripture. And she knows the world is trying to tell us a different story, that men and women are unisex, equivalent, interchangeable. And she pushes back against that by quoting C.S. Lewis when she says, first in her own words and then quotes Lewis, and this is a longer quote, but hang with me. I think it's worth it. In the secular world, men and women can and must be treated as unisex, interchangeable neuters, citizens and workers. However, that is a fiction that we are allowed to shed when we return to the world of reality, God's world. There we must resume our real identities as men and women. And this is where she quotes Lewis. The kind of equality which implies that the equals are interchangeable like counters or identical machines is among humans a legal fiction. It may be a useful legal fiction, but in church we turn our back on fictions. One of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and sensitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. And then she goes on to say, in closing, with the church... We are farther in, for there we are dealing with male and female, not merely as facts of nature, but as the live and awful shadows of realities utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our direct knowledge. So, so what's God seeking to accomplish in making us gendered human beings, male and female? I think it partly has to do with our third point, that there's glory in needing the other. There's glory in needing the other. God designed both maleness and femaleness together to reflect his robust glory in a way that no single gender can. And as equals, men and women, although not equivalent, together in their diversity reflect a more robust reality and glory of who our God is. 
And I think that's even what Paul's getting at when you get to verses 11 and 12, where he says, Nevertheless, and the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor woman or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Just as the first woman was taken out of the man, now every man thereafter is taken out of a woman, is born of a woman. And you see the designed interdependence at the very creation core of who God's called us to be. So whether you're single or married, Christ calls his church to be a place where men and women gather together and enrich one another. And as we look at the other, we see a greater glimpse of our God's glory. If you look at my daughter and watch her for five minutes, you'll quickly surmise that there's no way Gabe can do that on his own. If you scan through my inbox on a regular day, if you look at the pain, the problems, the questions, the requests I get as a pastor, you're going to quickly realize that there's no way that Gabe can do that on his own. And you would be right every single time. Whether it be in our homes, our vocations, our communities, within our church, God's answer to the problem wasn't just another human being, but a person of another gender. And so as we think about next steps, at least tipping our toe in the water, just initial thoughts on how we can live these words today. If, if there's glory in gender difference, if there's glory in telling God's story in your gender, if there's glory in needing the other, we need to look for the glorious beauty in our differences. Look for the glorious beauty in our differences. Men and women, we have similarities and actually, men, we need to be doing a better job of fighting for the equality of women within our culture in a male-dominated world. And yet there are so many differences, and praise God for those differences. So many times when we come to people of the opposite gender, we see what we know. We see stereotypes. We see wounds from previous relationships that cloud the beauty of the other. Instead, we're called to do the difficult work of knowing what we see. Engage in authentic friendships within the church of those of opposite gender. And where others get frustrated and give up over tension and become more of these gendered ghettos, we actually find great beauty in the diversity of the church. And we're called, as Lewis says, to still put those legal fictions aside. We still address each other as men and women with appropriate boundaries and care and love for one another. But men, embrace your gender and the responsibilities that that entails. Women, embrace your gender and the responsibilities that entails. And all the while, look for the beauty, the glorious beauty in those differences because it's in those differences where we feel so foreign from one another that we actually get a greater glimpse of our glorious God who is also other. Now, maybe after all I've said today, you're still wrestling, and I get it, um, because this isn't an easy text, nor, I mean, there's a reason the church has wrestled through this over centuries. And you may be thinking, this reading isn't fair, and it destroys the equal dignity of women in the engagement of the church. Well, I think, as I've wrestled through this, the most staggering statement in this passage is in verse 3. The most staggering statement isn't the head of every man is Christ. The most staggering statement isn't 
The head of woman is man. The most staggering statement that continues to blow my mind is the head of Christ is God. As I start to step into the amazing mystery of the Trinity, Jesus, very God, a very God, the creed says, right? In his role as Messiah, in submitting himself to the Father, limited himself to become a servant for the mission of salvation, to enact a story, a good news story in a lost and dark and dying world. Did Jesus' subordinate role, did it change his value or assault his dignity? Was it a sign of weakness or glory? Well, Jesus chose to embrace his role willingly for us, men and women, and now we're called to do the same. We can push back, and, I, and underneath the banner of freedom, find that we've actually missed out on glory. There's glory in your gender difference. There's glory in telling God's story in your gender. There's glory in needing the other. And may we look for the glorious beauty in our differences and see Christ in both. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come, I pray, in humility. I come, we come, I pray, in seeking unity, although we may not agree on this passage as we wrestle into the complexities here. I pray, Lord, that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is good, may that remain with your people and may your Holy Spirit continue to dive it deep within our hearts and shape our faith and our practice. That which is foolish or misses the mark, may we quickly forget even if all we remember is a sentence this morning. God, may you be glorified as men seek to live into their gender and women seek to live into their gender and the complexities and the brokenness in which we sit in our world. May we come with humility and our need for you to continue to speak into reconciling the brokenness of our world, even down to our gender. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.